Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. On the program today, tears and tributes in London, thousands paying their emotional last respects to Queen Elizabeth II, who lies in state at Westminster Hall. All this as we receive new details of the Queen's state funeral to be held on Monday. Royal expert Sally Bellell-Smith, who I've realised over the past week from spending lots of time with her, has truly unique insight into the Queen's extraordinary life, will join us to discuss. Also today... China's President Xi and Russia's Vladimir Putin meeting for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Two leaders whose strategic decisions have resulted in immense strain on their respective economies. They meet today in Uzbekistan, which incidentally is the first trip outside of China since the COVID pandemic for President Xi. All the details on that just ahead. And real rail relief in the United States. Negotiators reaching a tentative agreement just hours ago to avert a major strike and prevent more supply chain blockages and price pressures. So lots to get to today. But first, a deepening partnership. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping meeting face to face in the ancient Silk Road city of Samarkand. At the top of their agenda, the war in Ukraine and tensions over Taiwan. Ivan Watson has been following all the details for us. Ivan, great to have you with us. President Putin, of course, under strain as a result of setbacks in the northeast of Ukraine coming into this meeting. China so far willingly to help financially with buying energy, not willing, we believe, and still not willing to supply weaponry. Has anything, will anything change in this relationship? Well, you know, judging by the first comments that are now starting to come out, uh, it does not look like Vladimir Putin is getting full-throated support for his uh, deadly adventure in Ukraine from the Chinese president. Uh, In his comments to Xi Jinping uh, in Uzbekistan, uh, Vladimir Putin was pretty quick to address the elephant in the room. uh, And he said that he appreciated uh, his Chinese friend's uh, balanced position on the Ukraine crisis, as he put it. Uh, And he understood uh, Xi Jinping's questions and concerns about Ukraine and said he would address them, even though they've discussed this in the past. So this suggests that there are concerns about this war. And it is a subtle shift in tone, I think, from the last time we saw these two leaders meet. That was in early February, uh, on the eve of the opening of the Beijing Winter Olympics. And there you had these two leaders united in their real dislike for the U.S. and its foreign policy, uh, basically calling for uh, a new world order not dominated by the U.S. And what a difference seven months and and a deadly war makes. Now you have Vladimir Putin coming to this meeting uh, more internationally isolated than ever. Uh, His military uh, 
battered and, and arguably humiliated, and he needs China more than ever. As for Xi Jinping, he's coming to this meeting. It's his first time outside of China since basically the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and he's looking for uh, an international stage uh, as he's set to try to nominate himself for an historic third term in office just next month. We are not seeing, again, uh, a declaration uh, of broad support for Russia's war in Ukraine coming from Xi Jinping. And we just heard from the White House uh, an echo of that analysis saying that the White House is not seeing China uh, visibly supporting uh, Russia's activities in Ukraine, perhaps diplomatically. We have heard Beijing arguing that uh, basically the U.S. and NATO kind of forced Russia to invade Ukraine, but so far not seeing overt signs of uh, Chinese military support for Russia's war. Julia. Mm. Fascinating timing for both presidents here. Ivan, we'll continue to uh, watch any further headlines from those meetings. Great to have you with us. Thank you for the insights there. Ivan Watson. Now, as we await more details, as I say, of their meeting, here's a look at how their economic relationship has changed in recent months. In December 2019, a tangible success for Vladimir Putin's pivot east. Spanning almost 2,000 miles, the Power of Siberia pipeline was the first direct link supplying Russian natural gas to China. That gas to be supplied under a $400 billion 30-year deal signed in 2014, just three months after Russia annexed Crimea, as Western sanctions tightened their grip. As Russia decided to essentially go to war with Europe over, over a trade treaty, over a comprehensive free trade agreement that Europe wanted to sign with, with Ukraine, right, which is what provoked the initial intervention in, in, in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine in 2014, uh, you know, Putin knew that this was going to bring costs and he knew it was going to bring sanctions. Uh, and so he saw the relationship with China as uh, an opportunity to, to hedge against that. Pipelines and pancakes signaled ever closer ties between Presidents Putin and Xi. As both countries saw relations with the West deteriorate. No surprise then that Putin's last foreign trip before invading Ukraine was to Beijing where the two leaders declared their relationship had, quote, no limits. Russia's invasion did reveal some limits. Chinese officials say they have not provided military or economic aid to Russia. But China has refused to condemn the war, abstaining or voting with Russia at the UN, despite international pressure. I think that um, uh, China understands that Uh, its economic futures much more closely tied to the West uh, than it is to Russia. And yet, trade between Russia and China grew by almost a third in the first seven months of the year, according to a Reuters analysis of customs data. China has ramped up its purchases of, albeit heavily discounted, Russian crude oil, a trend Russia hopes will continue when a partial EU oil embargo comes into force in December. And Russia's energy giant Gazprom says that daily gas flows through the Power of Siberia pipeline hit a record in July. This month, the two countries announced China would pay for gas in rubles and yuan, shifting away from the dollar, another sign of their shared opposition to the US-led world order, something that for China intensified in the wake of Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. 
China is um, maybe not enjoying, but is taking this as an opportunity to see um, you know, how the West responds uh, to a military challenge like this, um, to see where the breaking points might be. The test now with Russia losing ground on the battlefield is whether China's tacit support has a breaking point when Russia needs it most. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. And in the meantime, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is in Kyiv for her third visit since the start of the war, a day after she strongly restated the EU's support for Ukraine in her annual speech of the Union address. Now, the meeting comes after President Zelensky was involved in a minor car accident in Kyiv while returning from a visit to the newly liberated city of Izium. He did not suffer any serious injuries. Zelensky claims Ukrainian forces have retaken almost 8,000 square kilometers of territory over the past two weeks. Nick Peyton Walsh has more on his visit to Izium. This is what confidence in victory looks like. Delighted swagger from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky touring the liberated city of Izium. A commander-in-chief greeted here as another human. The smiles for this president as genuine as the danger. Listen here, and you can hear explosions as he talks. It may be possible to temporarily occupy our territories, he says, but it is certainly impossible to occupy our people. These last months have been extremely hard for you. This is why I ask you, take care of yourselves, because you are the most precious thing we have. It is a victory that came at an as-yet-unspecified cost, this moment of silence for those dead. What he sees, utter devastation, part of why Russia is losing. It's hard to occupy and defend a city in this ruin. It's hard to imagine the Russian army's state of mind when it left behind this much of its armour. And what Zelensky did, another reason Ukrainian morale seems to remain high. Russian President Vladimir Putin is usually hundreds of miles away in Moscow when he gives out medals. This past startling week, a tale of two nations and a gulf in enthusiasm for the fight. Moscow's manpower crisis so acute, this video is apparently from a Russian prison, allegedly showing the man called Putin's chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin, personally recruiting convicts for the front line. He tells prisoners that war is hard, they can't desert, get taken prisoner, drink, take drugs or have sex with flora, fauna, men or women in the fight an undesirable message to an undesirable crowd. Russia increasingly less looking like a nation united in what it won't even call a war yet. Even Putin's stooges turning. Here, Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov again undermining the Kremlin that brutally put him in power. If you ask me, I would enact martial law and exhaust all possibilities to end the conflict with these demons I'm like a volunteer for Russia, he said, writing later, quote, we are at war with the whole NATO bloc. The unthinkable is happening. Russian dissent and criticism growing, but not yet at the speed of Ukrainian advances. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Kharkiv, Ukraine.
And you're looking at live pictures of Westminster Hall in London, where thousands of people from across the world have waited for hours to pay their final respects to Queen Elizabeth II, and they continue to stream past her casket there. CNN's Max Foster is also outside Buckingham Palace for us with new details about Monday's state funeral. Max, good to have you with us. What more do we know now? Well, first of all, we know that uh, we've just been told that on Friday there'll be a very poignant moment at 2.30 your time when the four children of the late monarch will be standing vigil there in Westminster Hall at each corner of the coffin and the public will continue coming by. So for whoever's there at that moment, of course, you can't time it. just depends where you are in the queue. That'll be a really profound moment in, I think, modern history, I think. Uh, pretty emotional just seeing the coffin, let alone seeing the three children standing around it. Um, then on Sunday, we've just been told a quite incredible event here at Buckingham Palace where heads of state flying in for the funeral will be hosted by the king. We think it's going to be the biggest gathering of heads of state, certainly in modern history, looking at the guest list so far, of people confirming that they're coming. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, amongst them, but also the Emperor of Japan, who very rarely travels for events like this, just shows how many um, heads of state will be here on Sunday into Monday, and I think that will be quite extraordinary. Then, as you say, we've got these details on Monday. Uh, at 6 a.m. your time, the funeral will take place with all those heads of state. Uh, it's at Westminster Abbey, uh, a very solemn affair, followed by a procession to Windsor. Uh, the royal family will walk behind that procession as it makes its way through London and through Windsor, and then the hearse will carry the car uh, between those two um, different places. At Windsor, uh, there will be a, a service at the chapel there. I think that looked very similar to Prince Philip's service, where uh, the Queen will, at the end of it, be lowered into the royal vault next to Prince Philip, and then they will both be buried together at a chapel alongside uh, where the Queen's parents and sister are buried. So I think that'll be very poignant. We won't see that last moment. The last thing we'll see is the Queen's casket being lowered into the uh, vault at um, the chapel at Windsor, but it will cap a quite extraordinary day, I think, on Monday, uh, a full ceremonial uh, day, but also a massive international event. Hugely symbolic and hugely emotional, to your point. It's funny, we've just been showing live pictures as well of people continuing to pass uh, Queen Elizabeth II's coffin, one person wiping a tear away, another clearly a former service member making a salute. Um, to the Queen as well. Um, very emotional images. Max, I just wanted to ask about King Charles III, actually. I mean, he clearly must be exhausted after all the events of the past few days, not to mention the emotion just, of, of losing his mother. Is that our very own Christi I think I'm just saying uh, quite extraordinary. I think we just saw Christina McFarlane <laughs> just there by oh, the coffin we? holding the baby. Is that Christina? Anyway, I mean, everyone's going down there. It's quite an extraordinary moment. Um, when you speak to people in the queue, I think the thing that's really grabbed me about speaking to people is, you know, imagine that they're there in the queue uh, for like hours, you know, up to eight hours, some of them, nine hours, and they're with random people. And then they get to know these people and they share stories and they get immensely close to these people. It's quite a random situation. And then they have this very powerful moment where they share a moment of history as they walk into Westminster Hall and see the coffin. And you're coming away, you know, people are swapping numbers, they're sharing stories and they're staying in touch. And they're going to remember that moment, of course, forever. But they're also going to remember the people they were with. And I think this really speaks to what the Queen would have wanted. You know, she wanted her 
funeral, the days of mourning leading up to it, to be a unifying moment for the nation. And I think that speaks to it more than anything else I think I've seen throughout this process. Yes, I think Theresa May was there earlier, former UK Prime Minister, potentially CNN correspondent, a former service member. To your point, it's uniting all, I think, in, um, in respect for her service and, and the time she spent, of course, as the monarch of this country. Max, I was just very quickly, I just want to ask, uh, King Charles today, what's he doing today? I was just mentioning, I, I, I can only imagine how exhausted he is after the past few days and the emotion of, of, dealing, of dealing with loss too. What do we know about the, the Queen Consort and, and King Charles today? Well, they've gone to the west of England. He's gone mm. to his home that is very dear to him. It's his sanctuary, really. It's Highgrove House, a, a place he spends lots of time. Um, I mean, it was being couched yesterday in the British media as a, a moment of rest, to retreat and to regroup. Uh, I'm being told that isn't the case actually today. He's, it's an opportunity to take calls from world leaders and members of the Commonwealth and particularly the realms where he is head of state, places like Canada, Australia, Jamaica. Uh, he needed time to have conversations and he's doing that remotely, mm. effectively, from Highgrove. So it's not rest time, we're being told. He's working very hard. And also, as you know, um, you know the, the role of the monarch is to go through the red boxes which are sent to the monarch from the government to read government papers to keep up to date on what's happening in government. He's now having to start that process. He hasn't had a chance to catch up really. So he's gone away to try to catch up on the red boxes and with those phone calls. So very much not working, but he is out of sight. Yes. Max, good to have you with us. Thank you for that. Max Foster there. Okay, straight ahead, we return to London as the line to pay the last respects to Queen Elizabeth continues to grow, as you can see. Stay with us. Welcome back. The queue of mourners along the River Thames to pay their respects to Queen Elizabeth II is moving at a pretty brisk pace, although you're looking at live pictures now and uh, those people look like they're standing still. But just let me give you a look at this, too. According to the government's queue tracker page on YouTube, yes, there is one of those. The line is just over four miles long. That's around seven kilometres. CNN's Scott McLean has been discovering that no one queues better than the British. Well, we don't mind queuing, but we do like to have a queue that moves, too. Um, Scott, what have people been telling you there? I know there's people I've spoken to saying they're making all sorts of friends while they wait. Yes, that's true. We know, uh, as you mentioned, Julia, um, you Brits, you love a good queue, and this has got to be the Super Bowl of all queues. We finally, <laughs> we've been chasing it all morning, we finally managed to find the end of it, and it is right in this spot. The Thames River is just uh, beyond this, this building here, and uh, we finally managed to reach the end of it because the end is sort of fluctuating all the time, and then you can see the stream of new people who are coming here, getting off the tubes and getting off the trains and buses and walking quite a distance to try to figure out where the end of the line is. Of course, there's a government tracker which gives you an approximate location of the end of the line. But to be honest with you, it is changing literally by the second because sometimes it'll move quite quickly and sometimes it won't really move at all. The mayor of London said that, look, this event of seeing the Queen's body lying in state and the funeral and all the pageantry around it 
it is like the London Marathon, the London Olympics in 2012, and the last couple of royal weddings all combined. And you can see why he thinks that, just because there are so, so many people. And many of the people that we've spoken to have traveled several hours into London to get here. Uh, some of them have traveled from abroad, from the United States, from Canada. Not they just happen to be on vacation. There are those folks as well. But these are people who have come specifically for this. And I just wonder, ma'am, you're at the very back of the line. You're live on CNN right now. And I'm just wondering, what is it like to be at the back of a queue that is more than four miles long? What can I say? I feel like I really have to be here today. So I will, I will do this for a few hours. And what can I do? It's not raining, so the weather's, the weather's good. <laughs> That's true. You Cheer up. I, I wonder, how long are you guys preparing to stand in line for? As long as it takes. We, we've came from Durham, which is a long way away. It's about a six hours drive in this traffic. So we're just but, here for the long haul. But of course you guys were hearing the you know projections of lines of 10, 15 hours or so. At first it was saying 30 hours, but I think they've turned it into four lines now. So we, Tower Queen. Yeah, absolutely. So, Julia, the thing is, is that we have, uh, of course, when we got here this morning, people were thinking that they might be in line for 10, 15 hours. Some people thought that they'd be here for 20 hours. Well, it turns out the line's moving a bit quicker than they thought. So we were near the front of the line and about to get about three miles down or two and a half miles down, it was taking about two, three hours. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of perspective, if you were to walk this route, just at normal pace, it would take you well over an hour. So if you think it takes you an hour just to walk at a normal pace, it's gonna take you even longer to be in part of a queue. And I have to say, the mood here, it's its not necessarily somber. I wouldn't call it a celebration either, but you mentioned that people are making friends. And, you know, we've met people who, you know, were total strangers in the morning. We saw them in the queue. We met them at near the front of the queue a few hours later. And, you know, five or six women were thick as thieves. They were the best of friends. They were having the best time and really sharing this common bond of this um, real admiration for the Queen. Friends for life as a result of um, queuing to pay their respects, I think. Um from what we know of Queen Elizabeth II, um, I think she would approve of that too. Scott McLean, thank you for being there and thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, I want to bring in uh, royal expert and author Sally Bedell-Smith. She has unique insight into the life of the royal family. Queen Elizabeth even granted her special access to her parents' letters and diaries. Her upcoming book, George VI and Elizabeth, The Marriage That Saved the Monarchy, is out next year. Sally, great to have you with us on the show. You and I have spent many hours over the past week talking yeah. behind the scenes, even if it's only translated to minutes on air. Um, and you do have, I've seen, an encyclopedic knowledge, actually, of the royal family and, and funny stories from behind the scenes. But it was actually what you mentioned about this unique access that, that Queen Elizabeth granted you to look at these diaries and letters that I, I wanted to talk to you about and what what they say about her parents and, and how they shaped the person that she became too as queen. Well, they, they shaped her profoundly and the way they trained her from, a, from an extraordinarily early age, even as early as uh, um, the age of four, she was meeting the wives of the princes of India. Um, and of course, their education of her, it was very specifically tailored to somebody who would be a monarch. And, uh, you know, starting at the age of 10, when she began to, to learn about constitutional theory and the principles of the um, British Constitution, and each of them in, in his and her own way, taught her things, particularly her father, who, of course, was uniquely positioned to tell her what it was like to be a, 
a queen, uh, little knowing she would become a queen so early. But um, but they were and and the experience that they shared together out in Windsor during World War II and what she saw and the troops she met and the training she received toward the end of the war. Um, and uh, as a, you know, with the auxiliary territorial service, learning to be a car mechanic, all these things <laughs> um, were essential elements uh, for, of her preparation. And even though she was only 25 when she took the throne, she was ready. Uh, Winston Churchill's daughter, Mary Soames, uh, Lady Mary Soames told me that he remarked to her how, how confident she was and how she felt uh, as if she slipped into the role. And I think people, if you, if you look at the, the, um, the movie tone news from that time, you can see she had that presence, uh, that uh, sort of combination of grace and modesty and commitment. That ha that characterized her for seventy extraordinary years. I think that also is part of of the character, and the strength, and and what allowed her humor to show at, at times too. Which I know you and I have spent a great deal of time talking about um, as well. I, I think cru crucial to this whole story and her life to me is the relationship that she had with Prince Philip, and and also what you discovered as well by reading these diaries of of the love story between her father and mother as well, which, which also played out and was a fundamental piece of, of the puzzle. Sally, how important are, are both of those things when we understand the strength, the power, the resilience and the humour of Queen Elizabeth II? Because I think perhaps we haven't talked enough about that over the past week too with, with everything that's been going on. Well, her parents' love story is really quite remarkable. And, um, and I was just so privileged to have access to the papers that sort of laid it all out. And they married for love. Um, he was madly in love with Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. She took a little while to accept his proposal, 30 months actually. <laughs> but when she did, she was deeply in love with him and so totally devoted to him. And so that was the model that um, that the future queen had. And uh, and she married Prince Philip for love. She fell in love with him when she was 13 years old and he was 18 years old. And I remember one of her friends, Lady Prudence Penn, once said to me, you know, with, uh, with the two of them, there was always a laugh around the corner. And they they were obviously uh, united in their in their service and in their duty. Um, but they also he was he was an enormous um, leavening presence in her life. Uh, I watched a couple of times when they were on tour and I saw something that went slightly awry and I watched them get into the car together and they were obviously talking about it and laughing. And we have to this is a, you know a time of terrible grief, but we also have to remember that in private, the queen had a wonderful light side. And I remember, the uh, the man who was sort of in charge of Sandringham saying that you could hear her laugh throughout the whole house and that's a very big house. <laughs> yeah, I I loved that story and I will continue to love that story. Um, Sally, I do want to ask how this all translates to to what we see, what we have seen, and what we will see in the future for for King Charles the Third too, and and. You and I have discussed, I think, how, how well he's done under great strain, great sadness, um, sounding yes. like a king in, in the early stages. And yet what has gone viral on, on social media is um, 
his interactions with, with a fountain pen and, and some of the challenges. And I have to say, of all the, the precision and the organisation over the last six days, the idea that we couldn't give our new monarch a pen that worked, just please hand the King of Iro, quite frankly, uh, sort of makes me sad to some degree, but it's also humorous. What, what do you make of, of this, of a, of a moment of, of, I guess, petulance, of, of frustration among great strain, let's be clear, Sally. Is this something we need to discuss about our future king or do we just need to give him a break, well, quite frankly? yeah. Well, partly we need to give him a, a break. He, he, yeah. He's obviously been under enormous strain. Also, he's quite insistent on using a fountain pen. So, um, <laughs> way, well, maybe no longer. No, there was no borrow. <laughs> that he, he was not going to sign anything. But, you know, that happened. He, he, he can have a short fuse. But, you know, today, when as Max was saying, he's in high growth. All of those things that he's doing at Highgrove, the calling the leaders, the doing the red boxes, he could be doing in Buckingham Palace. He went to Highgrove, I believe, because it is a place where he can retreat. He is the only king in the history of Britain who has a custom-built sanctuary built in the shape of a cross. It's an extraordinary building. Uh, it has a quote from the evening collect of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, over the door saying, lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord. It has Byzantine icons. It has Greek Orthodox texts. It's, um, it's lit only by candlelight and a fireplace. He, it, it, he, he never has carried keys, so it has four doorknobs, two of which he has the secret combination to. It, it's a sort of amazing little place. And it's in the middle of his garden that he created. He has said that it is the place where nobody can get to me. And every mm -hmm. time he goes to Highgrove, he goes there for at least 10 minutes. Sometimes he goes in there to write speeches. You know, it's that's what I think. Uh, he may not be spending the day reflecting, but I would imagine yeah. that he is spending time in his sanctuary, which is very, very important. Jim. Somewhere to draw strength from. Sally, thank you for, for making me wiser and You're telling welcome, me funny Julia. stories over My the past pleasure. week. And I look forward to reading the book. Always. Sally Padel-Smith there. Thank you. We'll reconvene. Thank you. So <laughs> Stay much. with us. We're back after this. Welcome back. A new proposal to help deal with Europe's surging energy costs tap the profits of the energy companies themselves. The European Union has proposed capping the profits of renewable and nuclear electricity generators and taxing the windfall earnings of oil and gas companies. The goal is to raise $140 billion equivalent to help households and businesses pay their energy bills. It's part of a larger package to help the region weather the energy crisis this winter. Since Russia launched its war in Ukraine, Norway has also become a gas lifeline to Europe. Before the war, it supplied 20% of the EU's gas needs. Now, as Russia reduces supplies, it's estimated 25% of the gas consumed in the EU this year will come from Norway. It's also a major exporter of electricity. Close to 92% of its electricity production actually comes from hydropower. And joining us now is State Secretary for the Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, Andreas Eriksson. Uh, Deputy Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. For, for many reasons, you're 
intricately involved in the energy system within the EU, even though you're not an EU member state. Can I start by asking you for your wisdom on some of these proposals? Do you see it as a good idea to be taxing oil and gas companies and potentially capping the profits on cleaner, renewable and and nuclear electricity firms? What's your sense? I think we see a situation in Europe now in general where the need to have broad uh, measures in place to help consumers with the extremely high energy prices are very important. Uh, And the fact that some of uh, the financing for those measures probably also should come from some of the companies that have high income in this uh, crisis, uh, that is probably a, a, a good approach from the European Commission including capping the renewable and nuclear energy providers. I think some would look at that and say they may be making willful profits, but these are arguably the good guys if we're looking at a more climate sustainable future. Absolutely. Uh, at least in Norway, we we have uh, a broad tax base with uh, respect to the energy system. We see that that work well over time. And we think from a Norwegian point of perspective that that is important to, to keep in place. But it's an extremely special situation that we see in Europe right now. And the fact that the member states need to find uh, uh, special measures for tackling these uh, uh, hard times, uh, that is very understandable from a Norwegian point of perspective at least. And what about from a Norwegian perspective on uh, taxing windfall profits for for gas companies for example because you are in a luxury position where you heavily subsidize the the consumption be it for, for households or consumers. Is this something actually where you could provide gas at at lower than market prices given the extreme acceleration that we've seen globally in what's being charged? Uh, First, let me just emphasize that uh, these measures uh, are proposed uh, for the member states of the EU. Obviously, Norway is not a member state of the EU, so we are in a somewhat uh, different position. Uh, And from our point of view, the most important thing that we are doing together with Europe right now is to uh, produce as much as we can, uh, help substitute uh, the reduced exports of uh, gas from Russia. Uh, And we also have a strong dialogue. We have set up a task force between the EU and and Norway uh, to look for measures uh, as to how we can help uh, combat the effects uh, of the crisis uh, that Europe is in uh, right now. Uh, Obviously, we have uh, a high income uh, for the state pension fund uh, in the current uh, regime. We have in general a very high tax on the Norwegian petroleum sector. Uh, and we uh, are planning to to obviously keep that in place uh, with a stable framework going forward. Uh, and then it's important to have a strong dialogue with Europe to try to find measures uh, that uh, can help them in the current crisis. What's most often talked about and the decision has been pushed back within the EU member states to um, October is the prospect of a gas price cap not only on on Russian gas, which of course is lessening and lessening, but but even including countries such as yourself that's now become a a significant supplier of of gas to to EU nations. I think 15 now, by the last count, are saying that this is something that they agree with, but clearly plenty of EU nations aren't on board with this for various reasons. What's your stance and and why would this be perhaps a bad idea other than financially for, for Norway? 
First, uh, it's important to note that it's the companies on the Norwegian continental shelf that both produce and sell their gas to the European market. So the state in itself does not have any role to play in the price setting or the agreements that are made with European buyers of Norwegian gas. But from the government's point of view, we have been uh, 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 skeptical about a price capping of the gas price. First and foremost, because the underlying problem in Europe right now is a lack of energy and a price cap does not solve that. Uh, quite on the contrary, it might strengthen the energy crisis, both with leading to too high demand in the market uh, and the need for putting in place other types of rationing measures that we have not seen thus far. And also that it might uh, lead to gas flows away from Europe and to other markets, uh, which could also strengthen the crisis this winter in uh, Europe. I mean, there are so many distortions, whether it's in the energy exchange markets, in the way that power prices are set based on the highest price input, like gas, for example. I think in the end, part of the solution has to be a way to bring demand down, however that looks like. And I think the Greek prime minister spoke to me several months ago saying, why not incentivize businesses in particular that can to use less? And obviously the EU has agreed to reduce um, demand for gas. Do you think perhaps a similar way, a voluntary way of reducing the amount of electricity that's used and perhaps compensating those companies for playing their part would be a smart way to do this too, whether it's for EU nations or, or anywhere else? That is obviously a good approach, mm. uh, helping to reduce demand while at the same time, uh, for example, uh, help them uh, tackle their, their very high costs uh, right now. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously that could uh, be, be an effective way to utilize the good things about markets, uh, helping uh, reduce the types of demand uh, that uh, uh, are the most flexible uh, and willing to take such a payment to, to help alleviate uh, the energy crisis and the lack of en uh, energy in the system. Yeah, I think we're in agreement, but I don't see it on the list. Um, Deputy Minister, I want to talk about the situation in Norway as well with your hydroelectric power facilities and concerns that we saw back in August that low levels of rainfall in your reservoirs perhaps may mean at some point in the future you have to make tough decisions over restricting exports of electricity to, to other nations. Can I ask, first and foremost, where you are today on that and whether or not we can we can rule out those export restrictions simply because of the broader geopolitical and energy crisis that, that other nations are facing. And, and I guess my second question that's tied to that is, does it mean longer term, if lower rainfall is the risk as a result of climate change, that, that actually Norway needs to think strategically about diversifying how it produces electricity and, and the reliance on hydroelectric power in the future? It's very important to note that Norway and the electricity system in Norway is very strongly linked to our neighboring countries and right. it will be so also going forward. Therefore, the mechanism that we have been looking into does not uh, directly restrict 
export, uh, but it prioritizes the filling of reservoirs when they reach critically low or very low levels. Now, it's not been finalized yet. We're looking into this, uh, but uh, it's very clear from our point of view that we are going to do uh, such a mechanism uh, in line with the EEA agreement, uh, in line with the principles that are important to making the uh, Nordic and European electricity market function properly. Uh, but obviously, our hydropower plants can play a very important role also in balancing uh, the systems in our neighboring countries and thus ensuring that we have sufficient uh, supply in our reservoirs are very important. Then I think your point on the climate change uh, that we might get more unstable weather systems uh, going forward is an important one. Uh, a large share of our electricity production is based on hydropower. Uh, now we see an interest, for example, for building more offshore wind. We have an ambitious plan of building 30 gigawatts of capacity uh, and awarding that by 2040. Uh, by doing that, we will help diversifying our system uh, and also it helps our security of supply to be connected to our neighboring countries. Yeah, it's fascinating. Even as we try and push towards a cleaner energy future, we have to take into account the changes in, in the climate, even as we're doing so. Um, we should talk about this again, sir. Please come back on and talk to me again soon, because that's a whole separate conversation. Um, Andreas Eriksson, sir, thank you so much. The State Secretary for Norway's Ministry of Petroleum and Energy. Great to chat to you today. Thank you. OK, coming up, they're still working on the railroad. An early morning agreement has been reached to keep freight trains running across the United States. The tentative deal, if approved, will give hefty pay rises to workers. That story just ahead. Welcome back to the program. A volatile week on Wall Street continuing. U.S. stocks lower in early trade this Thursday as another set of economic numbers underlines the resilience of the American economy, even as the Federal Reserve raises borrowing costs. Retail sales rising three-tenths of a percent last month, reversing weakness seen in the month of July. Falling gas prices, it seems, helping to maintain and even boost spending. And unemployment claims fell for the fifth straight week, too, a sign that the Fed's efforts to slow the economy and ease inflationary pressures have not yet led to a significant slowdown in hiring. Now, making a bold move in the battle against climate change, the founder of clothing company Patagonia is transferring ownership of the firm to two special bodies that will use the profits to protect nature and biodiversity. And we're talking around $100 million annually. The brand, best known for outdoor clothing and equipment, has long been associated with environmental clauses. Paula Monica is here with all the details. Wow, this is succession planning on steroids. So he's put the company into a trust. The proceeds or the profits that aren't reinvested into the business will be given to climate change or those trying to protect the climate, however they choose to spend it. This is a bold move. It's a very bold move, Julia. I think that what Patagonia realized here is that this decision is the best way to continue investing in climate change initiatives and planet-friendly initiatives going forward because you have 
the company committing its annual profits, as you pointed out, about $100 million after they reinvest in the business every year, will go to these you know, environmentally friendly causes. And it's set up in a way that you have the voting rights will be in shares of the company that are controlled by you know, Patagonia, you know, executives, family members, that will make sure that the business is doing what they uh, need to do. And then the non-voting is a collective, a charitable organization that will donate to these causes. And I think the company aptly realized that this structure, while uh, you know, unique, is probably the best way to go about doing this because selling the company or taking it public probably wouldn't have really been good options. Oh, and I love that you mentioned that because that caught my attention too. His comments on not going public, even public companies with good intentions are under too much pressure to create short-term gain at the expense of long-term vitality and responsibility. And it's fascinating in, in this country now where you've got regulators like the SEC looking at forcing concrete disclosures on climate change and they're receiving huge pushback. Yeah, huge brushback. A lot of executives don't necessarily want to have to commit to doing things that are eco-friendly and green, especially if it costs them money and they have to spell out how much they are spending. They're worried about short-term shareholders, be it mutual funds, individual investors, hedge funds, freaking out about that. But what I think was a really interesting point as well, Julia, is that the company admitted that they also had the option of selling Patagonia for presumably a big profit. And if by doing that, they could have made a lot of money, but then you can't ensure the new owners mm. would be stewards of the planet and do the right eco-friendly things that the current management wants. Yep. Standing by their values. Paula Monica, thank you for that. <laughs> Tennis great. Roger Federer announcing his retirement from the sport. The winner of 20 major titles underwent a third knee surgery last year. Federer's announcement comes on the heels of Serena Williams also, of course, announcing her retirement. Federer posted on social media that next week's Lover Cup in London will be his final ATP event. In his post, he thanked his fans, his family and his team for standing by him for all these years. Wow those tickets just became a really great investment. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. A nationwide rail strike averted here in the United States after marathon talks. A deal has been reached to avert a walkout that would have brought railroad freight services to a halt. There were fears that a major new hit to U.S. supply chains would have pushed consumer prices even higher. President Biden, who called into the negotiations, says the deal is a win for rail workers and the train operators. Adrian Brodus is in America's freight hub Chicago for us now. Talk us through the contours of this deal. How confident are we that it's actually going to go from tentative to a done deal? And how instrumental really was President Biden? Well, I'll start with your first question. Uh, union leaders who were at the table negotiating are confident this is an agreement their members will accept. In fact, they called this historic. One of the presidents who represents one of the unions and he said we were able to obtain an agreement that has negotiated attendance rule. And as I mentioned, he called this historic and said it's something the union has been pushing pushing for and striving to do for some time. Those members wanted time off to go to the doctor or if need be, go to um, 
visitation for a loved one's funeral. And you asked about the importance of President Biden. The president's role was critical. He's been making private prior to last night. He had been making private phone calls. But in the nine o'clock hour, he made a critical call to those negotiating and said, hey, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is the bottom line. If 60,000 of your members walk off the line and strike, think about the impact it will have on the American people. Think about the impact it will have on families. Think about the children that will be impacted. We're talking about every sector of society being touched. More than 30% of freight or goods are moved by freight here in the U.S. And we're still reeling from the impact of the pandemic. So President Biden played a key and critical role. Julia? And better conditions for workers, which I think is the key point here too. Adrian, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Adrian Brodus in Chicago there. Okay, that's it for the show. Coming up here on CNN, Becky Anderson is at Buckingham Palace for our continuing special coverage as thousands gather to pay their final respects to Queen Elizabeth II. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.